Hi, this is Kick Aspirational, uh, the Kick Aspirational podcast. This is Dave Vanderveen. This is season one, episode seven. And um, if you listened to episode six, you know that I talked about uh, interior work and spiritual practices. And I read a letter from a good friend of mine from college, Steve Marty, who, um, who asked me about um, some questions that another friend of ours asked, Steve Snezik, asked me that I read in the pilot episode. And some of his questions were about um, how do I pray? How do I know if I get an answer from God? Uh, those sorts of things, and um, how, do I, how do I know if it's the right answer? And and so Steve and I had a, a I felt a pretty good exchange about spiritual practice, um, and yeah. specifically some of our different practices mm-hmm. and how they've changed over time. And uh, and so I thought it'd be fun to have Steve on and talk about his own journey and his spiritual practice as it connects to that journey, because sure. this podcast is about breaking through barriers in our own lives. You've Absolutely. broken through some pretty big ones. Yep. In the last few years. Some that I created myself. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> many of the, many of the, uh, of the, of the barriers in our lives are, are self-inflicted, I think. Um, so anyway, so I thought we'd, we'd kind of dig into that. And, sure. um, and so in, in the last episode, you haven't heard it yet. Uh, I basically talked about, um, some of my own, where I came from, which was, you know, the Dutch Christian reform community, uh, my own particular view of God, which is, you know, kind of I, builds on where I started mm-hmm. um, and has kind of expanded. It hasn't, I never lost where it started, but I think it's expanded as I've traveled and met a lot of people with different, right. different views on God. Um, and so uh, I'm not, this podcast isn't prescriptive. I'm not trying to tell people to do things the way I do them or to believe the things I believe. It's just, it's just telling stories that have worked for me. And, you know, today when I do an interview, I like to ask people what works for them. And I think it's important to be specific because, um, you know, for something to be practical, uh, I think people need to know exactly how things work as Mm -hmm. well as the process you went through and and why. Um, So you can, you can dive in wherever you like, but maybe what would be a good place to start is um, you sent me a 16 page document that was um, about your process before, uh, you know, before you became, had some issues with alcohol mm-hmm. through an addiction to alcohol right. and then how you broke it and, and right. came through it. Would you feel comfortable kind of walking through yeah. that, that story? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's, uh, along the vein of sharing stories and stuff, I think it's, uh, and being specific about it. Cause I think, you know, you can argue and discuss a lot of different approaches to things, but there's one thing that can't be argued. You can't argue like, oh, that story, whatever. I don't believe it because it's someone's personal story. Yeah, it know? actually so happened to you. It, yeah. This is what happened, you know, and so um, you're right. Specific stories are great, and uh, that's that uh, is, yeah. So with that being said, I think uh, I'll give you a little bit of background of, um, of the listeners for um, of what that uh, story that I uh, sent to David, he had asked me when we were exchanging some messages about um, go ahead, and he's like, "Hey, I wanna, you know, I'd love to hear more about um, your process through addictions and your struggles and how you overcame it, and if you wouldn't mind sharing it." And I was like, "Oh, well, you know, I've had to write a story um, for." Uh, about that exact same thing and so I'll just send it to him and so that's what I did and um, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background about where I grew up and that'll kind of lead into where I'm at now and whatnot and uh, my father I grew up in a uh, conservative Christian home and I um, 
my dad was a pastor for a while, so I was a preacher's kid. So some people will say, well, you were doomed from the start, you know, since you were a PK. <laughs> right. You know? It's like, yeah, you were, you already, you, you didn't stand a chance from that start. Um, but anyway, we moved around a lot. My dad was in the military. Um, and and let's, let's dig into that real quick. So a PK, a preacher's kid. Preacher's kid. There's notoriety attached sure. to it. Sure. There's a lot of attachment to it, like... The rebelling. The rebelling, yeah. I mean, the the joke, the running joke is, you know, the preachers' kids are the worst ones. You know, <laughs> missionary kids. The and missionary preachers ki- kids, missionary yeah. kids and preachers' kids are the worst ones, um, and and to some extent that was true for me, <laughs> so I tried to live up to that. Um, but so he was um, a preacher for a while, and then he we he started a church in Arizona. Then we moved to Texas, and he was he got his uh, PhD in uh, Bible theology is THD I should say and um, then got a job at a at um, a Bible college up in Chicago and so we moved to the suburbs of Chicago uh, I believe when I was in like sixth grade um, and um, was involved in youth group and uh, church and um, all through high school you know and um, had this experience when I was 15, you know, of, um, of what, uh, Christians call accepting Christ as their savior. This, you know, had a personal relationship with him. I was involved in youth group and it kind of went from there and there and just kind of fast forward a little bit. Um, you know, went to Moody for a year or two and then transferred into Wheaton, which is where I met David here. Um, and, uh, Throughout my whole childhood, there was no alcohol in the house. No, my parents didn't drink. Um, I didn't. I didn't hardly. I didn't drink at all in high school. None of that stuff. Um, you know, I was pretty much. I was involved in sports and all that thing. I was pretty much kind of on the straight and narrow, um, pretty did, much through high school until I got to Wheaton, actually. And so, when you were at Wheaton, did you play basketball? I did. Okay. Yeah. That's for, how you knew Joel Davis and, and, and like, Steve Smith yep, and, and Jim McGee and a few of those other folks that. Right. We were all there with. So, sure. Yeah. So Mutual friends. Some com- yeah, some common connections there. Um, and then um, it was when I got to Wheaton, and um, I decided I played basketball for one year there, and then um, the next year I decided not to play basketball. Um, and so there was kind of a void um, that was left f- uh, from not being involved in athletics and stuff. And so, you know, I started doing the whole college thing of drinking and partying and, you know, just kind of. It seemed like what everybody was doing at that time, and uh, that was the thing to do. And I did, you know, at that age, we don't really think anything of it. You know, like that's kind of what you do at college. You know, even right. at Wheaton, with all the restrictions, you expect you probably do it even more at Wheaton because it is restricted. It's so, so taboo. We, yeah, we had signed so, a pledge that right. said you couldn't right. drink, dance, we smoke, did. fornicate, right. Right. Or And I was kind of along the same lines of. David, I guess if you would say, like, if they're going to tell me I can't do that, well, then I'm going to find out a way that I should be doing that and do a lot of it, <laughs> right? Do, <laughs> as do much extra. of it as possible, yeah, yeah. right? Is that rebellious preacher's kid streak in me? Like, if you're going to tell me I can't do something, I'll probably do it. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Um, and so um, that continued through college. I graduated from college and I um, uh, didn't really have any. Uh, what did you study at Wheaton? I was a political science major. Okay, so we yeah same had a major right, um, and uh, didn't was I had some ideas of what I wanted to do after college, but nothing really specific. So I ended up traveling around for a little bit, um, and uh, just kind of 
didn't really wasn't really working. I was just kind of traveling and just kind of figuring things out and went up to Alaska for a little bit and then down and I was in California for a little bit and then came back to Chicago and um, still didn't really have any direction. And um, that was when um, I started using, I guess, is what the addiction term would be. Um, and at first it was just mainly alcohol. And then um, it switched to, it was kind of a progression into um, some harder substances. Uh, I got in some trouble with the law and got a DUI. Um, and then I, I failed. It was a court-ordered DUI program, so it wasn't, um, I had to go to AA meetings, but they were like this closed court kind. It wasn't, it wasn't open, open to the public. Yeah. Um, and we got drug tested in one of them, and I failed the drug test, and they sent me to Narcotics Anonymous, NA, and um, I got really freaked out by that whole scene. And I was used the, the famous line of, a, you know, those people have problems, it's definitely not me. You right. Know, like I'm not, I don't, that's, that's their deal. Those people are crazy. Yeah. Those people yeah. are crazy. Those people need some serious help, but I don't need any help. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I kind of, I, I stopped It freaked me out and I just stopped going altogether. I just completely bailed on it. And, um, and I just kind of got lost in the system of Chicago, I guess, and nothing really happened. You know, there were no more repercussions from it. Um, and so I just continued what I was doing, and um, I just continued drinking, and um, I kind of moved into some harder drugs. And um, there was a few, I guess, actually, I need to probably back up. Um, there was two traumatic experiences throughout this whole thing that I, I think I mentioned, and that really played in the, in fact, I had a, fr a friend of mine back in college who... So it was a friend um, from Wheaton. Yeah, it's from Wheaton, who one Christmas... Um, he had uh he was staying over at the apartment we were at because my parents had been gone and he didn't want he was from colorado and he didn't end up going back home and he had driven his car over to my parents house and broken into their garage on christmas day and um and the, and left the car running and it killed himself and so um i had driven over there this is my senior year in college so he, driven over to my parents place on christmas day and found him in the garage of my parents' house, um, dead. With the car suicide, running? With the car running, so he had, right. um, from so, carbon monoxide poisoning. Wow. So, um, and and so, so you thought he might have gone over there, or how did you figure that out? Well, he had broken in through the window. Okay. Yeah, I had gone over to my parents' place on that morning, just like, just because that's where my parents lived. It was like 20 minutes from my... Yeah. But they weren't there. No, morning. they were in California. Right. Right. And so, uh, so that was obviously horribly traumatic. Yeah, it was. And it was, um, I looked when I, it was one of those things at the time that um, it really shook me because I got, it took a lot of blame for it. I got blamed a lot. Um, I was pretty angry. Um, I was angry at the people that thought it was somehow my fault. And, but yet I was also angry at, um, I was angry at God. Um, for allowing something like that to happen. Um, and it really has put me in a, in a tailspin for about about a semester. And that was, um, it was what almost caused me not to graduate. Um, so, so backtrack to that. And so I thought I, that's, it was a pretty important um, experience that um, shaped 
the behaviors that I would exhibit later on. Mm. Um, so I'm sorry I left that out earlier, but no, that's, that's, that's all right. To, and then the other one was the other one when the apartment. Yeah. So out? then when I was living in Chicago, um, we had a fire in our apartment one night and it was about, <clears throat> it was probably about two in the morning and it was one of those fires where, uh, we lived in a, it was a triplex, you know, so we were on the top floor and it started down at the bottom in the very back. And, um, it, uh, it burned everything down to the ground. And it was one of those ones where you ran out with just the clothes that you were wearing in the middle of the night and lost everything. How did you wake up? Was it because of uh, one of my roommates was actually up on the phone talking with his girlfriend and smelled, um, smoke in the back and ran to everybody else's rooms and got everybody up. Mm hmm. So you're yeah. kind of fortunate that way. Yeah, right, right. Very fortunate. And again, it was another one of those um, uh, experiences that was very traumatic, having to lose everything. Um, and uh, I think I explained it in this, um, in the in that story that I written you. That it was when I look back at it now, I, I feel like those were. Um, some pretty hard jabs by God trying to get my attention as opposed to the more subtleties that he uses sometimes with with people. Um, and subtleties didn't usually really work well with me. And so it was <laughs> more kind of like a yeah. really hard shake, like what are you doing with your life type thing. And uh, it didn't didn't really work. I was going to ask, did those have any impact on no, you? No, they didn't really. Um, and it was, part of it was, uh, I was, and I, I mean, it was one of those things where you don't realize it at the time until you're looking back on it, where the addictions were really um, had a stranglehold at that point. And so there really wasn't even traumatic experiences like that um, were not going to um, get me to stop doing what I was doing. Because I, I seriously, at, that, at the time, didn't think it was that big of a deal still. Right. So, so you, you ended up leaving... Chicago leaving Chicago moving out to middle nowhere um, Utah um, one of the reasons I'd left was I was like okay well maybe if I can just get a fresh start you know like leave leave that stuff behind you know that stuff that's happened you know a pretty classic um, avoidance um, yeah pretty classic addiction thinking like oh, I'll just change zip codes Change the environment. You change the environment, you know, except that, you know, addictions can go wherever. They, f they tend to follow you around. Um, there's usually liquor stores wherever you go, <laughs> yeah. you know. Well, and, and, <laughs> and it's kind of a th the idea is that the addiction is external to you, not internal, right? Is that part of the thinking process? Right. Well, I mean, one of the very first things that, um, you know, addictive people, they're great at denial. Sure. Um, you know, like... Everybody else has got issues. I don't have issues. I'm fine. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. The rest of the world has a problem. Right, right, right. You guys need help. I'm. I don't. Right. You know. Um, so yeah, there's that whole denial thing, and when you're in that state, you don't you don't see it as an issue, you know. Um, and it is. So um, yeah. And so anyway, I thought that that would. How, how did you um, make the connection to, you moved to Utah, right? I had some friends that um, I knew in Chicago that were working out at this um, at-risk youth wilderness program out in um, 
in the middle, of, basically in the middle of nowhere, Utah. And so I just <laughs> that's figured. That's a city, that's I, a zip code. Right. That's the, the name of the city. Yeah. Um, no, it was a small town. It's called Torrey. Um, it's by Capitol Reef National Park. Beautiful area. You know, beautiful landscape. National parks around there. You know, really small town. Um, and it, it was just kind of the, you know, I just thought that I'll just go from like one, I'll get out of the city and I'll just go far away as possible to the opposite of whatever was going on, the hustle, bustle, bustle, and the drugs and all that stuff, and I'll just go to where there isn't right. that stuff. Um, and it turns out that, that uh, there was that stuff there, <laughs> after all. Pretty, so, yeah, you can always um, find it, right? Right, right. If you've got an addiction problem, it, it'll find you if you don't find it, right. put it that way. So, um, And, um, you know, and it was one of those things that where at that time, you know, I was um, in Utah, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't drinking every day because I had a job that required me to be basically on the clock for eight days straight. So there was eight days at a stretch. I'm taking kids out in the field, you know, the desert, the mountains, whatever, you know, these are at-risk youth kids, you know, which the whole irony of it is, you know, is here. I'm struggling with my own addiction, helping kids with their addiction, you know, um, so there's a, there's a slight bit of hypocrisy there involved and, there, but and um, you hadn't really come to grips with your addiction yet. No, so, I wasn't. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I didn't think of it as that at the time because it, uh, you know, there's at least eight days straight where, you know, I wasn't drinking or anything like that, and then you know there was six days where there was a lot of that going on, but then I go for eight more days, you know. So it was like this. It's kind of like this binge and purge, yeah, type thing going on there. Um, but, uh, it was, um, there's one of those, um, I mean, there were good things happening and I think that, um, as I was looking back on it and I think I mentioned it, you know, like all these were like steps that, um, that God was letting me go through. Um, he was letting me be hurt by things. He was letting me struggle with these things. But at the same time, he was also still blessing me, even when I was struggling with addictions, because I left and met my wife there in Utah. You know, we bought a house there. We had a, um, both our kids were there. Um, so all this good stuff was still happening. You know, I was getting promotions at jobs at the job, and um, so there were all these bad things happening, so, so to speak. But there was also a lot of good things happening. You know, and I think that's in a way that kind of kept me thinking like oh i can handle this sure you know like i've got things under control and in some in some extent i did um but in general everything was completely probably out of control right and so you you met your wife and um did you did you move to colorado what, what point did you move to colorado um so the wilderness program there in utah um shut down and um, we got into a point where our kids were getting ready to go into school um, there was a pretty heavy um, Mormon LDS population there um, didn't seem like there were a lot of options um, and you're not, not Mormon only or LDS so you don't correct, want to right I wasn't not your neighborhood you know um, nothing against them they're great people um, but um, that's not that wasn't neither my wife or I were um, LDS and so and there weren't a lot of options for school for the kids either um, and so we decided we needed to move to where there are more options for them and then also more options for work um, 
So you moved so, to rural Colorado? Right. And so we moved from a town of like 200 to like 1,000 because wow. for us that was like a really big move. You know, we <laughs> moved to the, to the big city. Yeah, yeah we moved right. back to the city. Right, uh, to the city of 1,000. So we, and we, it was a small town in uh, south, about the Four Corners. So yeah. it's called Dolores. Um, so we moved there and my wife has a really successful business. Um, uh, she d- does catering and she has a wood-fired pizza oven. and um, So she was doing that and I wasn't really doing anything. I was basically, in the, and it was at that point that um, I was pretty much a daily drinker. Um, I was waking up and drinking and then pretty much just drinking all day, wow. every day. Um, and, uh, and I just, and that's what I did for, uh, almost three, I'd say three to four, four years straight, maybe, maybe even five years straight. Wow. And that's, um, and that would just continue and that was the pattern. Um, and my wife, you know, hints were getting made, uh, my parents were getting involved. They were saying, you know, you're going to lose your family. Um, and it really got into a point where I just didn't even really care. So you weren't um, hiding it. Your wife was seeing this and was aware of it. No, I tried to hide it. I, w- I thought I was hiding it. That's the thing with also with alcoholics. They don't think anybody else knows what's going on. <laughs> Um, but everybody knows what's going on. Right. You can't really hide it. You know, even the people that drink vodka that say it doesn't smell, that's false. Yeah. You know? <laughs> They're like, oh, I'll just drink vodka. No one can smell it. It's like, no, that, that doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, you know, and I was still somewhat functioning, you know, but um, it just kept spiraling and it kept getting worse. Um, I kept retreating more. I kept isolating myself more. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to deal with it. Um, I didn't. I didn't want to do anything. So um, you you find yourself in this place where you're really kind of enslaved to this this addiction. Sure. Right. You're drinking right. every day, all day. Um, it's starting to ruin your relationships, or at least people are starting burning to... bridges right and left. Yeah. Yeah. What? Um, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead or if you want to talk about something else, but what was it? How did you, so you're in this, you've got this big barrier in your life. Mm-hmm. How did you break through it? What were the, what was the series of, you know, kind of events or yeah. you know, how did, how did you get to the place um, where you broke through? Well, they say like, if you want to get out of the hole that you're digging, the first step you got to do is you, know, you stop digging. Stop digging. Yeah. yeah. Stop digging. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't to that point yet. Like I, I was digging and didn't care. Um, and it, what happened was, um, it was one Thanksgiving, uh, 2015, um, Monica, my wife left with the two kids and went back to her parents' place in Michigan. And I stayed behind and it was about two days after she had left it was right around thanksgiving so it was it was about a day two days before thanksgiving she sent me she sent me this letter and basically said you need to get help or we're done i'm not coming back um, wow. here's your options you know and she had done some research and we had some people because of the wilderness program that we had worked in had friends that were involved in that business and knew about programs and obviously addictions and 
sure um, and stuff like that so they had some ideas and you know so it's basically this intervention um, how, how is it that you didn't go to Michigan with your wife and kids for Thanksgiving uh, I don't really know exactly why probably because I'd rather because I was completely checked out at that time yeah and didn't want to be involved in any of that and didn't really didn't okay. really care so and, yeah she, right okay that's fair yeah so she goes to Michigan you're home alone she sends you the note and says you need to get some help and she sent you the place that she wanted you to go that was a suggestion of it you know and um she said this is your she basically said I've had enough I can't I can't do this anymore. And it was, I mean, she was, um, rightly so. I mean, she had every right to, um, you sure. know, she, you know, if it would have happened two years earlier, it would have been totally justified also. Right. Um, you know, like I had definitely put her through way more than what most normal women would have put up with. So you've got a strong um, wife who was yes, willing to stick yes, with you. Absolutely. And also, yeah. Also she hadn't, she never did. She didn't give up on me. Um, but the worst part about it, I think that whole thing, and you know, and this is, I don't, I don't normally have a lot of regrets about the past because I can't really change it, and you know, I made those choices, and it doesn't do me any good. But my, the worst part about it, um, the part that I'm least proud of is I think, um, my first response back was, well, I'm not going, so then I guess we're done, um, and so. I was basically willing to um, completely give up on the marriage, my kids, God, and life, basically, for alcohol wow. at that point. Um, that's the that's how deep and dark of a place I was in. Because um, at that point, I just didn't I didn't think there was any way out. Um, you know, and I think I briefly mentioned that in that story of. You know, the only way out that I saw, foresaw at that time was, you know, doing what my friend did in college of pulling the car into the barn and just leaving it running. Like, that was my out. Wow. Like, that was the only solution that, Suicide. in my mind, that was feasible at that time. Um, fortunately, um, by the grace of God, and, and I really, I feel like in the midst of that insanity that was going on, there was this moment of sanity. Um, and, you know, we we mentioned, uh, you talked a little bit earlier, and we were talking earlier before the podcast about, like, how, how do you know when God speaks to you? Yeah. Like, I had one of those moments where, for some reason, I wrote my wife back and said, okay, I give up, I'll go. Right. You know, and that, for me, I don't, I mean, I had no intention of wanting to do that, but for some reason, I decided I would do it. So. Sure. And so... And so, I went. I went to, to a 30-day treatment center. And you think, just, and just for clarity, yeah. um, the, the sanity, the clarity, the moment when you connected with what your wife was trying to tell you and said, fine, I'll go, do you think that was... Uh, a spiritual action in your life or some kind I of I do yeah. and I, I don't think that um, I don't think that was me initiating it because um, even though I was you know raised um, in a Christian home you know I accepted Christ when I was 15 
but had gone so far away from it that I, you know, like he was non-existent to me for the, like the last decade. So through all the drinking, I mean, I never once prayed to God like, oh, take this burden away from me, take away this urge to drink. Never even crossed my mind. I never even bothered doing that. Right. But at the same time, um, for me to change my mind and finally be like, okay, fine, I'll go. And then the sub- subsequent events that happened while it was treatment was kind of one of those things where, like, I feel like it was God being like, let's just get him into a treatment center. Let's get him through the door. Sure. And then... That's step one. That's step one. And then I, I'll take it from there. Sure. You know, but let's get him there first. And so that's why I think that that was... And was, was Monica, um, was she praying or you know did she have a spiritual practice or some something that brought that aided her through this process at all yeah that and a lot of friends and family i mean it was i mean i don't i don't want to i don't want to speak too much about um what she was going through yeah um that's her story um and that's a little a little out of the boundaries sure Uh, so but yeah there was you know, it was that, and I think there was a lo- there were several factors, and I mean, it was it was just as hard on her, if not harder, on her to see me going through that, and to have to make that decision, and make that call of like I've had enough, right? You know, and put that tough then, love down, yeah, yeah, to do that type of intervention. So and so then you're you're at the facility, and how long were you at the facility? I was there thirty days. 30 days. And yep. is that the standard? Yeah, it's a, usually that's what they, um, 30 day treatment centers are usually 28 to 30 is usually the normal for those. And so um, you were there for, so you were there through the Christmas holiday effectively. Right. So I missed, I went, got in on the, I checked in on the 5th of December um, and got out. I think it was about the third, second or third, I think. I, I might have gotten out. Um, and you had a special start in there too. I did. I did. I, I was stubborn. I was very stubborn. Um, so you flew, <laughs> I didn't like you, to give up easily. You, you left, you flew to Nashville. Is that right? I did. I flew to Nashville and I decided I would, um, that's where the center was. Right. It was, um, yeah, I'm not going to throw all the names out of it, but, um, yeah, it was a, it was a treatment center in Nashville and, um, I flew there and I decided that, um, I would just do one last hurrah. So I got really intoxicated on the plane and um like how intoxicated i drank all the way on the plane and then once i got off the plane before my friend picked me up i drank a whole fifth of whiskey oh wow before i got in the car so your blood alcohol was you, yeah, were, was, did was, you remember was, getting was, to the facility no not really not too much yeah and your blood alcohol was off the charts it was it was rather high to yeah. say the least yeah so, you had a couple so of i spent um yeah i was trying to go for the record spent in medical but um it was a. Uh, I mean, it, I don't. I don't like the war stories because it. You know, we can all tell our fair share sure. of war stories about sure. drinking, and um, you know, some of them are funny. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But um, it was no. It's not a laughing matter. Um, and um, the three days I was detoxing was like the worst. Wow. Worst three days possibly of my life of vomiting, and I don't know if anyone's ever detoxed. It's like a hangover times a hundred. Ooh. So. Yeah, I've, I haven't had the, the pleasure, but um, 
but 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 I've heard I've heard horror stories. I've read some of the you know, biographies. Of it's rock rough. Stories yeah, stuff, you know yeah. the there's a there's a quite a bit of difference. Like you know people coming off of opiates or something like that. They say um, you know you can chain them to a, a radiator, the radiator, and they won't die. But you chain an alcoholic to a radiator during detox, and there's a good chance you'll kill them, just because the body goes into such such shock and you have seizures. Oh, that wow. they'll end up having seizures and die. Oh, wow. So the detox for alcohol is a lot more dangerous. That's why they don't recommend also. Anyone that's listening, don't don't try that at home. Yeah, go to, get into a center and a treatment mm-hmm. facility so someone can help you. So you're you're there for 30 days. And what was your life like inside the treatment facility? Um, it was very structured. Um, it was uh, after you got out of um, the medical and the detoxing, you would... Um, go and and they had cabins there and so there's at the time I was there um I mean the the whole facility I think held 120 or so so I mean depending on the time of year there's various numbers of people there how many people Um, are in your and about six to eight I think maybe 10 to 12 I can't okay ours wasn't completely full I had a roommate obviously and there was yeah there's probably about 10 when I first got there and it was an involved revolving admission you know so there were people there that had been there three weeks already and then you yeah. know so it just so constant start- turnover revolving admissions so you didn't all like come in at once yeah you know. so they don't want you having a lot of free time obviously no not a lot of free time you know you wake up really early you go you basically you you're either in an aa meeting you're in a group therapy you're in individual therapy um you're doing some assignments, you're going back to more therapy, you're doing some type of physical activity potentially, then you're going to another AA meeting at night, and then, yeah, it's just pretty much from morning till night. When you were there, did you feel like the 30 days was a good amount of time? Um, you know, it's one of those things is um, you get out of it what you put into it. Um, I know people there that, you know, you could have stuck them there for a year and it wouldn't have mattered. Um, I mean, the goal of that specific place was that you would get to the point that you were doing your fourth step, which was your inventory part. Um, so you'd work the first three steps. So it was it was a 12-step AA-based program. Based program. And what, um, so, so what are the first three or four steps? So the first one is basically admit you're powerless. Um I'll just summarize them real quick. And then um, the second step is that there's a God higher than yourself and he's the only one that can solve your problem. And then uh, the third step is um, come to, uh, basically there's a a God higher than yourself. Um, I'm trying to put it in AA words because I don't don't follow AA now, which we can get into a little bit later. Sure. Um, God as you understand him. Yeah, um, and he's the only one that can um, take away this addiction. And then the fourth step is basically you write the—that's the first three. Is that what you asked? Yeah. The fourth one is you do. Yeah, and the fourth one is you're basically doing your inventory of. Yeah, it's basically your list of sins, so to speak. All the people you've hurt and things you've done. Yeah, it can be long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and so they didn't want you to complete that, but they wanted you to um, start on that, so you had a good start. So that was the goal that you would have that done at by thirty days. I mean, 
there's nothing that if you didn't have it done, have it done, it's like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a pass. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, you can't leave until you have it done. I mean, we're all adults there. I mean, you can leave whenever you want. Sure. You know, it's not voluntary. Yeah. They'll do everything they can to try to keep you there beyond physically restrain you, but they can't, if you're going to leave, you're going to leave. And so a 12 step program, whether it's AA or not, I mean, um, my, I haven't, you know, gone through a 12 step program per se, Mm -hmm. but like at our at our uh, little church in St. Helena, Grace Episcopal, uh, the priest, Father Mac, he was a big fan of 12-step programs. And he made the point that, you know, it's not about drugs or alcohol. It's about spiritual renewal. Sure. Right? I mean, that was his, his point. And, and he would start out every Sunday. He would say, hi, my name's Mac, and I'm a sinner. And everybody in the congregation would say, hi, Mac. Yeah. And that's how he kind of kicked it off. Right. Um, because there does seem to be that, that 12-step process does seem to have a lot of power. Oh, sure. And, Absolutely. And how it helps people kind of Absolutely. take inventory of their own lives and mm-hmm. recognize that, um, I think it was David Foster Wallace, who's, by, by the way, agnostic, great writer, who said, uh, you're going to believe in something. Make sure you know, you, know, you intentionally decide what you're going to believe in and that it's bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are kind of generalized accounts of God. Right. Um, and, of course, we have listeners from all different religions, all different walks of life, mm-hmm. and, and that's fine. Um, people, I think, experience God differently, largely, too, based on the culture they come from and how they're raised and all those types of mm-hmm. things. But so you 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 made it through the, the, right. the program. Right. Yeah, and there was, um, you know, I had um, the pastor at my church, actually, he knew I was going, um, he knew I was going to treatment because uh, Monica had talked to him about a month or so before, um, and so he had actually sent me with um, a couple books of a of a Christ-centered recovery program that that's run basically run around the world. But there's specifically one at our church called Celebrate Recovery, and he had sent me with a couple of those books. And um, as you were talking about twelve, you know, twelve steps in AA, and you know, and I think I mentioned to you earlier. How, I mean, AA has helped a ton of people. Um, but for me, the vagueness of AA, um, the vagueness of the God part, the vagueness of the God part, specifically in step three, you know, and there was, there's a few other, the steps that are kind of vague, um, where they just kind of leave it to people's interpretation. Um, and for me, I'd gotten to a point, um, where I realized what I'd done and I'd had this spiritual experience. And when I'd gotten out of, you know, the med tent and um you know i remember taking a walk with this guy who had been there for about three and a half weeks and he was there for opiates and um he was actually a sunday school teacher of all things yeah um and we were talking and i remember asking him i was like you know so what is it that works you know what sticks what's going to make it stick what's going to make it work and um and he looked at me and we come from the same background and all he said was he's like I think you already know the answer to that and in my mind the answer was you know recommitting my life to Christ and turning giving over my turning my addiction over to him because if I had had the power to stop it I would have but I didn't and I couldn't so sure um there was something I couldn't do it myself, and for me, the answer was 
Jesus Christ. And that's where, you know, we draw the line between that step three of the vagueness of God as you understand him, where I prefer to use the specific. And I, and I personally believe in my own story that that is the only true higher power that will, uh, will, work. will, will work on addictions. And I mean, it's not even just addictions, but I, I think there's spirit, a whole host true spiritual renewal. you know anything yeah. that's broken which is basically everything in this world right <laughs> so if so so I mean so I think I understand what you're saying and I think it makes a lot of sense you had a very specific problem your personal story mm-hmm. and you needed a very specific solution and you needed a specific God not a amorphous abstract God is that is that fair right and I, I mean and you, you know and I think part of that is you know, I, I I remember specifically sitting in my room after I'd taken a walk with this guy and just completely breaking down and realizing, like, everything just hitting me at once of everything that I had done, um, all the mistakes I had made, um, and just in releasing those things, being like, God, I need help. Right. I need help. And... Just, you know, I don't, unless you've had one of those experiences, they're pretty hard to describe of just this flood of emotion and um, stress and pain and all this stuff that you'd been internalizing, just being let go of. Wow. Um, It's a huge. Huge. And, you know, it's just like this weight was lifted off of my shoulders. So if you think about that, I guess some of my questions are, um, you know, for me, like I was raised in a Dutch Christian Reformed community, so it's not only a specific faith tradition, mm-hmm. but it's even got nationality and DNA tied up in it, right? Sure. So, <laughs> right. And I think, you know, for, for me, part of my story, and I talked about it on the last podcast, was I actually had to, not, uh, I had to leave it in a way so that I could come back to the pieces and parts that made sense for my life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and that's kind of the, you know, for one of the things I had talked about before, and, I'm, and I think you had said maybe these aren't things that you fully agreed with, and that's fine, and I'd like to hear about that. Um, you know, when we think about like a philosophy or a theology mm-hmm. or a religion, um, those are typically cons- constructs. They're, they're models that are built based on somebody's experience, right? right? And that person is trying to say, okay, I had this transformative ex- experience. Here's what it was. And I'm going to now try and verbalize it and put a name on it and build a whole set of practices around it mm-hmm. to try and help other people understand that experience or participate in that. Mm-hmm. Whatever this thing is that mm-hmm. created all this that participated in my life in a personal way. Um, do you feel so you I mean, and, and maybe this question is a little odd. Do you feel like the specific Judeo-Christian God, Jesus Christ, that, mm-hmm. that you talk about, um, how do you connect? So you have this amazing experience where you're praying to that God and mm-hmm. you have this release, mm-hmm. tra- I mean, transformative mm-hmm. release. Mm-hmm. Um, and you specifically use the Jesus Christ um, name. Tell me why... The Jesus Christ name in particular is so powerful and important to you. Um, Instead of just saying God or the you know the power behind the universe or something more generic. Well, I mean, 
my personal belief is is um it comes from specifically from the bible right um you know and i believe that you know jesus christ came to earth died was crucified on the cross and he rose again right. and he did that for a specific reason right and that's and, a literal, and you have a literal belief in all I of do. those acts yeah. i do yeah and i so and i believe that that it's what he did for each and one of us and specific and, i mean obviously and so i fall into that category obviously sure um and so that is why i pray to that god right because i believe that that is the only god that he's the only person that I know that died and came back to life. Right. Not any, I mean, and I don't want to get into the other religion parts because that's not what this podcast is about. And so that's why I prayed to that God. Sure. And that's why, um, when I pray, that's who I pray to. Yeah. Um, I think that's the one that has the answers and that, you know, and I think like when I mentioned the celebrate recovery, you know, and that recovery program is based off of, you know, one of the most, more popular sermons in the Bible, which is the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Beatitudes which yeah. is, you know, if you have any um, biblical background, everyone's aware of that one. Um, and so it's based off of that, and so that's why I related to that one more than AA, sure. per se. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, I think it does. I think, you know, one of the things, so we have a person we both know from Wheaton, Rob Bell. Sure. And, um, you know, I've, I've stayed in touch with Rob and mm-hmm. um, participated in some of his different events and activities. Um, and one of the things he talks about a lot is is um, uh, how how people progress, which isn't isn't like the best. I don't think that's really the best term for it. Uh, but but how people change over time. Right. Right. And and this is something we had talked about on the Facebook Messenger mm-hmm. that you know, for me in in my life and my that I needed different tools at different points in time in uh, my life. Right. Um, and it's not that I don't, I think, like, I don't think my, for example, my Dutch Christian Reformed roots are bad. I think they were really important and they were really powerful and they're a great foundation for a lot of things. And I still reflect back and use a lot of those tools, but it's not the entire tool toolbox that I have right. today. Um, when you're going through, so this is, I guess, the question I have. When you're going through, and, and I was actually just opened up. I found the, the conversation we were having. Um, you had said um, some of the things that resonates with you. Snez, Steve Snezeker, if I asked the question, basically, what do you pray about? How do you know the answer? Mm-hmm. And in, in episode two, I, I touched on some of that. Um, and, and you said that the um, intentional listening listening. As particularly as it relates to relationships, is really important to you. Sure. Um, so as as you're going through this and you're thinking about your own life and you're thinking about what resonated with you at this point, um, and you're listening to your life, I think at that point mm-hmm. is is part of that story. You know, when you're in an addiction, your brain's giving you a lot of bad information. Is that right? right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, not to do- delve into the whole um, science aspect of addiction, but you know, essentially. Um, we have these tracks in our brain, um, right. and over time, through alcohol use, even cocaine, whatever, you basically create new tracks in your brain that didn't exist there at all, um, and that are bypassing the ones that were there from whenever you were born and that were developed over time. Um, and so, 
when you take that line of coke or you um, take that swig of alcohol, it's reinforcing that track of addiction there that goes to your frontal right lobe you know that stimulates all the things you know and it's the same as like when you're having sex or you know it's it's, it's they're all the same but it's that track that is there you know and um and so um that is what is being stimulated from right so, yeah and so if I'm trying to get back around to your question of... So, well, so what I'm thinking, I guess where I'm kind of going with this, and, and I'm trying to ask it in a question format because I'm not sure that I'm right about all this. I'm just asking, I'm truly asking. When you're, if you, a friend of mine who's been, you know, who's very active in the AA movement mm-hmm. um, said, you know, part of the process when they're trying to get someone through this recovery phase mm-hmm. and, and especially immediately afterwards mm-hmm. is they're saying, look, when your brain tells you to do something, uh, don't do it because right. your brain is typically telling you to do really, really bad things. Sure, right. Um, and so, like some of our friends who've been through addiction and then come out on the other side and are looking for churches, as an example, a lot of times will resonate more with a a more, I would say, evangelical slash fundamentalist church where you're not wrestling with a lot of gray areas as much as you're getting hey, th- more of a binary equation. Like this is the answer. It's more black and white. It's more rigid. Did, did that sort of, I mean, do you, where are you on that? And what do you think about that concept? I mean, is that something that resonated with you? Do you prefer more specifics and literal kind of uh, faith traditions right now? I do. And I mean, the, I mean, I'm involved in Celebrate Recovery and um, it was formed by, uh, it was formed 25 years ago. It was uh, started by someone who was a recovering alcoholic who gone through AA and was like this, you know, it's missing something. There's something missing from this, right? And, you know, and so wrote out this whole thing based on the Beatitudes. Took it to the pastor of the church that he was going to at the time. The pastor's like, "Yeah, it sounds great. Do it," you know. And so he started it. Awesome. Um, and then this was 25 years ago. And, you know, now it's worldwide. And and anyway, um. And I think this is what, you know, when you asked me earlier about the third step. Right. Um, and the specific of that. Um, in my story, in my belief, like, to me, that's what works. That's the only thing that that actually lasts. Right. Um, that, um, to me, that's, that is. So in the literal sense, that is the answer to me. I don't think there is another answer. Um there might be something that temporarily works for somebody. Um, I don't. If you want the permanent answer to um, sobriety, to um, addictions, to alcoholism, I mean, you know, there's only one thing that's going to fill that hole. There's only one thing that's going to fill that. And it's not. You can you can replace alcohol with cigarettes. You can replace sure. alcohol I with mean, coffee. You can, you can go for long runs. You can go for bike rides right. to, you know, create the tracks, new tracks in your mind to replace, which are all very important. Right. But that's not going to be the permanent fix. Well, I was laughing. I, I, didn't, I didn't post this when you sent me that note. You sent me a note about how you just uh, slayed everybody in Michigan yeah. you know, at sea level. Because <laughs> right, right. you, you train at, what, 7,000 feet? Right, right. And you're I doing do. a lot of triathlons? I do. And, and you, you tend to win your category, I your do. age group. I do. And uh, you sent me a note. You're like, 
I was just in Michigan. I crushed, you know, my yes, category. 40, yeah. And I was like, well, you know, maybe they're not all alcohol, recovering alcoholics. Because yeah. you know? <laughs> right. a lot right. of a lot of my friends who've been through recovery <laughs> do tend to find sure. things they can, you know, really invest themselves in or sure. obsess Well, about. I mean, I th- and I do. I mean, I mean, there's several aspects of why I do that. Um, Plus, I you mean, were an athlete. It's not like you sure. were an athlete. Yeah, before. I mean, I, I was an athlete, you know, and I, I think that I've been blessed with some God-given abilities to run fast and and abuse myself in crazy <laughs> ways like triathlons. Right. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things is I made a promise to myself that um, part of me in my recovery was getting back into shape and being physically fit. And, you know, and I think like, and again, it's part of that, you know, dopamine is released when you're doing things like that. You know, you might probably get sure. the same kind of high when you're surfing, Yeah. you know, which is much better than smoking a crack pipe, right? Which is, I think <laughs> so we they can say, both agree. Yeah, yeah so this, I think that's in the science of it. Um, and I also, um, yeah, so I started doing triathlons and, and things like that. And so, so tell me about like so in, is in your in your practice today. So we were talking about um, reflective listening, mm-hmm. which you don't think there's. How do you practice reflective listening today? Well, I mean, I think what we were talking about too is, um, you know, in relationships and stuff, and, um, and that's a reflective listening um, practice. And you know, and I think like like a lot of the best way to tell for someone to know that you love or care about them is to listen to them. Um, and I think in this hustle bustle and age of social media and all this stuff going on, that it's kind of like a lost art of, you know, in the conversation, we're always thinking like, okay, well, why this person saying this, you know, we got things rolling around in our head of what we're going to be saying next. Right. You know, and I think like the reflective listening, um, it, allows causes you to have to pause right and almost in your head or i mean it it would be awkward if we were always doing it out loud to each other (laughs) um but um you know in our head we're reflecting like what did this person say and it creates that space before you're just rolling into what you were going to say like two minutes before that person was done anyway sure and it allows you to process what they were saying and get where they were coming from. So that's, you know, the, the reflective listening part in relationships. And, you know, and I think the intentional listening part, you know, and I, this goes to that uh, daily practice of, I think, you know, when we pray, we pray for things. And we're like, all right, sweet, I'm out of here. Right. And you know, we don't wait around for the answer. You know, like, how can you how can you get the answer if you're not willing to listen for it? Right. You know, and so I think, like... And you said that God, you think God says, has four different answers, right? Yes, right. no... Yes, no, maybe, and you have to be kidding me, right? <laughs> Are the four ways that God answers prayers. Right. Right. Or not at this time, you know, I guess would be better sure. than the maybe one. And so when you, you talk about reflective listening. We were talking earlier about, um, somebody asked Rick Warren this at Saddleback today. Mm-hmm. You were at a, a sure, conference at there. at a conference, correct. And you had resonated, you said, with his answer. Is that right? Right. Um, so what, what's your answer and, you know, how does his answer resonate I think, with you? Um, you know, I think, so I think recovery is a spiritual journey. You know, I think, um, I think recovery, at least for me, um, it is my recovery is not complete without prayer. Um, 
you know, I, ha- I know I had family members that, relatives and even friends that were, you know, praying for me for 20 plus years. Wow. You know, being like. Steadfast. Yeah. And persistent, you know, very right. persistent. Um, and, you know, and sometimes that, that's what it takes, you know. So, I mean, there's reasons why that happens, you know. Some, God wants to make sure you're serious or everything works out in his plan. I'm sure you've heard that. And, you know, it's like maybe I needed to go through all these things to be sitting here talking about it on a podcast. Right. You know, would be part of his plan. Or, um, or, or maybe it's also that even if you do all those things, we have a, effectively a sovereign God who can take whatever you do. Exactly. And, and, and make something yeah. good out we, of it. Right? We, we, we like to say that God never wastes a hurt. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's that. But I think, um, yeah, and so there was a, there was a, you know, the question of like, how do you know if you pray, like, what's the answer to your prayer? How do you know when you're hearing it? How do you know it's not the crazy side of your brain telling you what you think is the answer to your prayer? Um, and, you know, Rick Warren's answer to that, and by the way, he's the pastor at Saddleback Church here out in... He, he, wrote, he wrote Purpose Driven Life. Purpose Driven Life, you know, yeah. somewhat successful book, I yeah. think about 40 million copies or something. Um, so... Um, and he said that, um, the more time you spend praying and talking with God and the closer you get to him, the better you get at discerning what his answer is for your prayer request versus, a, versus, versus your own head or something just else. some whispering thought that's floating through your brain at the time. Interesting. So it's, it's the, it's the putting in the time, the dedication, yeah. the hours and sure. And, and I, and I think yeah. that, you know, that that goes into that, the whole daily practice of, you know, like, I mean, every, everyone's daily practices, um, is going to be different, but I think for mine and especially in recovery, um, is spending that time reflecting not only on what God has done for me, but what I've done throughout the day. Do I need to make amends? Mm. You know, did I treat people kindly? Did I treat people with love? Is there somebody I need to say sorry to? Sure. Um, you know, and spending that time, and then obviously, too, for me, you know, it's spending time in the Bible trying to learn more about this God who's answering our prayers that we're praying to. And do you find, you, you said that, um, you know, for you, it's it's less about these structured prayer experiences, and right. it's more about kind of living. It's in, about conversation. I like in, to yeah. think of prayer as a conversation, um, and not, um, you know, spending your writing down your list of prayer requests, <laughs> praying for, asking for them, and then saying amen and being done. Um, I'm not. So God's not Santa I'm not, Claus for I'm you. I'm far from perfect at having the ongoing. Sure. Conversation, but I mean, I don't, I feel like, um, I feel like as a father wants to talk to their child and wants their child to talk with them, you know, like we're, we're, you and I are both parents of kids, you know, like one of our greatest joys is when we can talk with our boys, right? you know, have conversations with them. And I feel like that's the same way with God and his children like he wants that conversation he wants that relationship he wants that ongoing discussion sure to happen 
you were my, my boys are one's out of college one's in his last yeah. year of college yours are in fourth grade and first grade this coming year correct right? so one of the things that as parents we did with our kids was you know they get in the car we pick them up from school and mm-hmm. we say how was your day and it was you know we get these one word answers right. good right. bad no what, what, yeah. what happened nothing you know and one of our rules was complete sentences right and i think you know maybe to that point you know if if this is like a a, a healthy father child relationship part mm-hmm. of what god probably wants from us is complete sentences <laughs> sure, sure and also as as we grow up in in a faith yeah. tradition um maybe ask some questions back, right? Right, like, right. You have a great conversation, sure. you ask a lot of questions, exactly. and then you listen to your point about reflective right, listening. Right, Yeah, and I think, too, you know, and I think, like, like um, and this gets back to, you know, like, how we were raised with certain traditions and how we've had to kind of move away from them or learn different ones in our journey and stuff. And, like, you know, there's, to me, there's nothing off limits that you can talk about with God. I mean... I, I figure, like, he already knows everything anyway, so you might as well just tell him. It's right. not going to shock him. Right. <laughs> you know, he right. already knows what's going on. So you might as well just verbalize it. And, you know, and I think, and I think you had mentioned, like, um, lists, you know, making lists and stuff and how getting things on paper. And verbalizing lists on paper is also, you know, I think extremely beneficial. And I, I think I'd mentioned to you that that was, I really like that idea. Um, of, you know, getting things out, out there, regardless of what it is, or how crazy it may sound, how out, right. you know. It's articulating and exactly. verbalizing. Right. The, um, you know, one of the things that I found, I, I keep a notepad and a pen next to my mm-hmm. bed. I keep them in my backpacks mm-hmm. when I travel. Um, I've just found that even when something's rattling around in my head that's really bugging me, if I'll just write down the issue... Right. And then make a couple notes about potential solutions. Mm-hmm. It may not solve the problem. In fact, it probably won't. Right. But it'll it'll take it from just rattling around in my head and start putting some specificity around it as I start to articulate right. it and articulate solutions. And then I, I love to write memos or, you know, like what what I consider a more fully formed thought. Mm-hmm. Then you know we think we're thinking about something, but until you actually try and write it down, a lot of times it's not really articulated and it's not really a fully formed thought. And so a lot of times I try and draft like even a memo about it, even a memo to myself. Do you have any practices um, you Um, talked about, Liz? I'd like to say I'm a great journaler, (laughs) but I'm not a great journaler. But do you you keep a journal? I try to. You know, journaling is like this, um, it's this weird thing for me where I'm really good at it for... 20, 30, 45 days That's great. at a time. And then I'm terrible at it for 20 days, 30 days, 45 days at a time. I think that's normal. Um, <laughs> it's, that's because like, we're made out of people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's definitely, um, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, from a recovery standpoint, you know, um, we like to keep a daily inventory. Sure. Um, because if you've ever done a fourth step, you'll never want to go and do one again. Right. You know, so you try to keep your side of the street clean so you don't have to go back and clean it all up at once again. Right. Um, so you daily take out your garbage, you know, so to speak. Um, and so that that's useful in the journaling 
uh, part of it. Um, and, you know, and I think it's, I think it's useful. Um, uh, one of the speakers at this conference that I'm at, uh, town, Dr. John Townsend, he mentioned, you know, making lists, he even mentioned making lists is great, you know, like, um, he, and he was talking specifically about businesses and personal relationships and stuff and how thinking from traditions and generalizations and stuff can hold us back from what we are trying to achieve. And it's good to write it out on paper what it is that's holding us back and the effect of what is happening to us because we're being held back by this, you know, misinformed thinking that that's come from, uh, you know, from some aspect in our, our past life or whatever, um, past experience. Um, and so, so, so it's basically giving birth to these ideas that are kind correct. of bubbling around right, right. by the articulation over the listing that you're that Sure. You're and I think everything that, like, you know, the, the mind tends to think better of the things that it can actually see with its eyes. Right. You know, as opposed to just thinking about it. Right. If you can actually see it. Um, it tends to get ingrained a little bit better. Sure. Well, it's like writers who sit in coffee shops and talk about the thing they're writing rather than sitting down and doing the hard right. work of writing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally different yeah. category. Um, so what, what would you recommend when, you know, people, for whatever reason, want to renew their lives, want to fill these vacuums or these holes in their life? And they're, you know, they're trying, a, you know, look, we've all tried a variety of things to fill a, fill a hole that doesn't fill it. Um, what kind of interior work or spiritual practice or process would you encourage people to explore and dig into and, um, and, and, you know, practice in their own lives? Um, again, you know, I, to me, there's only one, one solution to that. Um, and, um, you know, I like to, some people will say to, um, you know, like, I don't feel like praying, um, or um, praying doesn't work, you know, and um, I, I tend to disagree with that, and I say, well, you know, just keep praying until it does, or keep praying until you feel like praying, um, or, and, yeah. or, and I also think that, like, to me, like, to me, the answer is, um, and there really is only one answer, um, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so, that's my bottom. That's, you know, it's as simple. And I think. So how do people he, explore I that? If somebody's interested, somebody says, well, I'm looking for more specificity around this thing I want to worship. And Jesus may be, maybe is the answer for me, but I don't know. How do they, how do they. I mean, I think there's tons of resources out there. You know, I think if you want to, you go straight, you go straight to the user manual which is the Bible, you know, <laughs> um, and I think, um, I mean, I think what we talked about before is, um, have a conversation with God, even if you don't know how to have that conversation right. with God. Um, and I think he'll understand what you're trying to ask, even if you don't think you're asking it in an articulate way. Do, do you think the primary purpose of prayer is to get external things or get some external rewards? I don't. Or do you think it's about interior work? I think it's about interior work. That wasn't a setup. I just... No. <laughs> <laughs> the follow-up. No, I don't think... Um, you know, I don't... 
I mean, I think um, exterior things, materialistic things, things like that are all great. And, um, you know, they, they bring us joy, even though it's temporary type of joy. And I think the interior work is where you find the lasting happiness in things. And I think that is the purpose of prayer. I think, um, I don't think, I think God created everything. Um, praying and thanking him for everything um, is this is all just relationship building type things that um, that you're doing with God and I think that's what he desires like I think he made us for a purpose and that purpose was to love him and how we do that is through prayer and conversations with him I think is one of the aspects of it so would you say um, you know maybe the, one of the primary purposes of prayer in addition to praising God and loving God, is mm-hmm. to also submit ourselves to this power greater than ourselves. Yeah, I do. And um, and, and I think it is because I don't I don't think that God does anything that would ever purposely harm us. Um, I think He has a perfect plan for everybody. Um, I think He's a good, good Father, and the things that He does is good. I think bad things happen, the world is broken, you know, and that we, that's a whole nother podcast on free will and free choice, you know? Sure. Um, and so I think discovering his plan and realizing that he wants that conversation, that how much he loves us um, is what, like, people say be like, oh, I've let God down or I haven't loved God enough you know, or is like, it's warped thinking because it's like, God doesn't love you less or more regardless of what you do. Like there's nothing that you can do that would cause him to love you less or more. So Does you're, that make sense? It, I, yeah, I'm familiar <laughs> with the idea. So it's, it's the idea that if, if, if God is primarily based and built in love. Right. That is the nature of God. Everything Correct. that's part of God is, is all about that. Um, that. And if God made everything perfectly good, that God's not out trying to trick us with, right. with evil or put, you know, tempt us into, into bad choices. But even when we make those terrible decisions, even when we're in the depths of our addictions, whatever they are, mm-hmm. whatever we're addicted to, um, that God will meet us there. That right. God never stops knocking on the door, and that God—he'll chase you down wherever. <laughs> the hounds of heaven. I think C.S. Lewis said, "The hounds of heaven right. are after you." I don't think he'll escape. So it's yeah. No, I th- I, th- I think we're on the same page, and um, and I th- I thought we would be, you know, from our exchange, anyways. Mm-hmm. And 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 I was also curious where we would differ, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you being willing to not only do the podcast and to drive here from Saddleback and spend some time together today yeah, with or without great. the podcast, <laughs> but also um, also to kind of bear some of your wounds and right. tell some, some failure stories, which I think are where we learn the most anyways. Uh, absolutely. I absolutely think. I think that, that uh, I mean, I think you've said it before, is um, the best way to teach other people is to teach them from the mistakes that we've made, not about the successes that we've had. 
Right. And, and I like to say, you know, do an autopsy on it. Right. Let's, right. Let's, let's dissect this baby it and open. figure it out. Yeah. Right. So we right. don't do it again. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and hopefully don't do it in a 30 day treatment. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people need treatment for a lot of different things, but <laughs> this is true. You're lucky to have it for, for alcohol. Um, so thank you, Steve. I really appreciate your time. Um, this is the kick aspirational podcast. I hope you enjoyed this today. It's interactive. It's an ongoing project. We're all trying to get better and I would love your comments, your questions, um, uh, you know, however you want to, however you want to engage. Uh, and I'd love to hear your stories. You can reach me at the Kick Aspirational website. You can DM me there on Instagram, or you can go to um, David at kickaspirational.com, or you can hit me on my, uh, <laughs> my other Instagram, David58, D-A-V-E-E-D-5-8, or on Facebook, uh, David Vanderveen. Thanks a lot. Be Kick Aspirational.